so good today. I mean, I, it was one of those, I, I, I told Gerald in the back, I said, coming out of that song, it's, you better be careful putting Dave up there coming out of that, because there's a potential for some tears. I mean, too good, no, I believe. I mean, I mean, seriously, that one got me. I was in the back, I was like, I am crying. So good. You know, when there, there are people in the church that are hurting and walking through stuff, just like Dave, so I love that he mentioned that, because I think sometimes coming in, and coming out on a Sunday or even coming in for a tribe or oasis gathering, you don't realize you look some people in the eyes and talk to them and have a conversation with them. And there are things that are so devastatingly dark and hard that people are walking through in the church. And I think in every, honestly, in every church, I've been in ministry for a while now. And it is, it is you know, we realize very quickly that we live in a world that's in desperate need of redemption. I said that last week. And there's no way, whether you're a believer or not, that we can't, you know, sit in that camp and say, that's true. We look around and the world needs redemption. But the beautiful thing about walking in here and singing those songs and all, all of a sudden feeling faith rise, even, even, even in your own heart, like Dave just, you know, kind of confessing, like, man, it's hard to hold on to it 24-7. I mean, I know y'all think we just float on little clouds as pastors, you know, and just cruise around differently than you do. Like, we never sin and never struggle with our relationship with Jesus. But we are you. We're the same. We are in the same boat, doing the same thing, struggling with the same things. And speaking of struggle, you know, James, as we've been in this passage, he's really getting down on the ground. And this passage right here is known as one of the most on-the-ground passages on arrogance and pride in the Bible. John Piper calls it like one of the most short, succinct passages to indict everyone in the room when it comes to pride. And when we, as we come off last week, you know, we're talking about this, this idea you know, of where conflict comes from, these passages are really connected together. They're really all about the pride and arrogance of man wanting to control their own lives and wanting to be their own God. That's the essence of the Garden of Eden. They, were in, they had shalom, which, as we said last week, is when things are as they should be. Our life, our version of shalom is kids are doing good, job's doing good, life's doing good, TV still works. We're all in shalom. It's as it should be. College football's coming up and stands are going to be full, hopefully. Shalom. You know, we've got it as it should be. And for, for human beings, we talked in the psychoanalytical world, you know, there's this thing called affect. And we're all moment by moment trying to balance that affect in a place where we feel shalom biblically, like that five, six zone. Like one would be despondent, things aren't going really well, and I'm shut down. Or 10 being I'm raging, I'm angry, I'm anxious, and I'm scared. And we're always trying to do things along the way to try to get back to the 5-6. And the indictment in James is that we are using and leveraging God's good gifts as, as avenues to give us shalom. When actually, God himself is supposed to be the avenue of shalom. And we use the things on planet Earth like each other. We, we, we try to make a sinful person the, the pinnacle of our lives, a relationship, a marriage, the pinnacle of our lives. And then he moves on in this passage and he begins to talk about this idea of the problem is, is you've elevated yourself, your plans, your life above God himself. And as we look at this passage, we're going to stand, just we want this to sink in, sometimes just standing, getting the blood flowing again, and reading the passage, but also in reverence to God. So let's stand together, we're going to read this passage together as a church, or I'll read it, and we'll just kind of pull in, just read those words off the screen to yourself. 
James 4, starting in verse 13, says, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city. We'll spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live or do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Thanks be to God for the beauty and the power of his word. You guys can be seated. You know, when you think about boasting and you think about pride and you think about arrogance, I don't know about you, but I always have, like, I think about sports. I think about, I don't know, I have a picture of what pride and arrogance looks like. Like, who is the, the guy that has no idea that he's arrogant, but he's arrogant? We all know it, but he doesn't know it. I mean, there's these, this thing. And when I read this passage, I don't know what it is. It feels like James has been watching people, like looking at his community, looking at his church, looking at the things around him. It's like, look at the people moving from this place to that place. They're, they're not even thinking about God. They're just medicating their lives, trying to get back to shalom as it should be. And their faith has become just an appendage, just a little thing that they do to tack on to life. But in, in terms of faith dictating the tempo of their life, these people have lost it. And it's all because of arrogance and pride. It's all because they are trying to be their own God. And it's this kind of, I, I call it, it's like a people watching patches. Like, like looking down and seeing, oh, there's people moving from this place to that place, making money, doing this and that, kind of running their own lives. And it's also a picture of God looking down and going, look, this is a bunch of people on planet Earth that have no idea that the one that the world was made by and for sees everything, controls everything, is going to redeem everything, will judge everything. They have no idea that they think that they're making these plans. And I was thinking about this idea of arrogance and boasting and people watching it. And right before I went on my break, Dan and I, uh, Dan McFerrin, who's an elder here, and you often see him up here leading services, um, we, our wives were out of town, and we said, hey, let's go get something to eat. Uh, we'll feed the kids early and go somewhere a little bit more fun and leave them at home. I mean, you got to do that every once in a while. Just leave them. Sorry, kids, we left you at home. And we went to Margaritaville. And uh, it, we went there because we were like, you know, that we've watched this monstrosity go up right next to the church. And we hadn't, I mean, we hadn't been there. Um, you know, just in our arrogant boasting, we're like, that's where the townies go. And the people that come over the ditch to go to the beach, beach people don't go to Margaritaville. That is the people that travel here from far away. Um, but we said we will lower ourselves and go to Margaritaville. No, we're like, it's going to be, be a great view there. And we haven't been there. It's in our community. It's right next to the church. Let's go check it out. So we went there. It was really crowded. Um, so we sat up at the bar. And you know how, like, I don't know if any of you probably, this probably shouldn't be a part of my life. But even me and my wife do this when, we, when we're, like, out on a date. Like, do you ever look around and just people watch? I'm a, I like to people watch. I mean, the best place to people watch is the mall, but the mall doesn't exist anymore, so you got to go other places to do it. So, you know, you go to a restaurant, you kind of check people out, and you kind of assume what they're doing, you know, and just like, you see that couple over there? Definitely an internet date. I mean, you can feel the awkwardness that's going on over there. You know what I mean? You're just kind of checking it out, or you're like watching the guy just kind of talking, like he is an attorney, and he's telling his wife about his day, and she's not in her day. She's just like, I don't know what he's saying, and really don't care. Um, I mean, you just kind of talk about who's whatever, they're about to break up. I mean, those are the obvious ones. You ever seen those? I mean, just, you know, you know, you see the dinner going on. 
But we, you sometimes if you're lucky, like sometimes if you're lucky, you'll be like, it'll be crowded and you'll be close enough to actually hear what's going on. Those are the fun ones where you can like hear like the conversation. And you got to picture this. It was, and this is no joke. There was a, uh, there was a guy who was at the bar very close to where me and Dan were. And we were kind of at an angle so we could see what was going on. And he, better looking than both of us, so we were probably just jealous. He's tan. He's about 55, 60 years old. And, you know, he's, 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 there's a, like an illegal zone where you can unbutton your shirt to. Like there's a button that's like right, right here is like on the border to illegal, like right there. And then once that goes, it's like all that's illegal. You shouldn't have that going on. He was way beyond the legal zone. Had a gold chain to cover up the legal zone with a gold nugget right there and a pinky ring, no wedding ring. So he, you can kind of get a picture of this guy, right? I mean, you can see, I mean, Matt Odom's right back there. You just take a look. No, I'm just kidding. I heard you laughing. I just said, I got to pick on him. Um, Matt, many years ago, I mean, you know. So he's, he's sitting there, and this is, literal, this is no joke. I can enhance a story. Maybe he didn't go beyond the illegal zone, but this part's true. He had his phone out, and he was show, he, like, and there's like young people around him, younger than him, like young girls, young guys, and they're all kind of into it, and he's holding court. He's obviously important and famous. We don't know who he is. He's showing everybody pictures of his Porsche's. Like multiple Porsches. Like, here's the one with the two models from Jacksonville. Here's the one that was in Fast and the Furious. I mean, it was like, we were just like, oh my. I mean, it was just the picture of arrogance. Like, you just could see it all happening. And all of the young people were around him laughing at his jokes. Ha 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 ha, that's great. Hope he gives me a job later. You know, I mean, like, it was that kind of thing that was going on. And then we think about ourselves and we think we're not in that category. We don't have pride and arrogance like that. I mean, I drive a 2003 Suburban that is so rusty. People follow me and go, hey, dude, you just left something. I don't know what it was on A1A, but here, you might want to put that in your car. And you think, I, I don't have that problem. Like, that's not me. I'm never going to be the guy flipping through the thing and don't, not knowing that I'm arrogant. Well, here's the news that James is telling you today that all of us need to sit in. Because none of us, I think, get in that place of going, I am the most arrogant person. Well, that's at the point when you might go, oh, he's talking about me. And this is an indictment because I think we all know what it's like to make plans, to do the kind of live life and begin to forget about God and try to build our own world around us and build our own story around us. Even in faith world, in Christian world, it's so easy in the West to say, yes, I am dedicated, I'm a follower of Jesus, and my life becomes my own. My life becomes the things I build around my life, the houses that I have, the, the, the things that I do, even the ministries that you have, that you're doing to leverage for your own glory and not God's glory. That's an indictment. And we can all relate to that. And James is coming in and trying to make the corrective action of saying, You've tried to find shalom by making your plans. Like we said last week, you've tried to get in that shalom in the home, the five, six zone where everything is as it should be and you're, you're leveraging what you think you can do and you, you think you can control your life. And he's trying to lift our eyes to the God that actually can change everything for you in an instant. The one that can heal you, restore you, redeem you, but he also controls everything. He controls everything about your life. And... For many of us, we, we make plans and we don't even think that it could change in an instant, but it can. You know, we've got Sunday plans, you know, already preached once, preaching again now, and then I'm going to go have lunch, I might go to the beach later, you know, I don't even know what the plans are for tonight, but, you know, loose plans. Some of you have planned your Sunday 
you know, 10 weeks in advance because you're a different planner than I am. But we all kind of have our way of making plans. But everybody in the room, in an instant, your cell phone could buzz in your pocket and your life changes forever. Someone's dead. Someone has cancer. I mean, it's the life that, it's what 2020 showed us. It's like we had plans. I mean, I was going somewhere. I had a flight to here for a week vacation here. Not anymore. In an instant, our life changes. That's not God. God's plans are sure. God's plans are set. God is sovereign on high, controls everything, knows what's going to happen. He is omnipresent. He does not get tired. He does not sleep at night. We are, we are so weak, we have to shut down at night. Like we got to go, okay, I've done all the things I can do. Boop. And we go to sleep. God doesn't sleep. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get stretched thin. We are not God. But James is lovingly trying to put us in that position to say, you're, you're back in the garden. And you're getting, you guys have been hitting the eject button on God and moved in subtly because the enemy is crafty to, to that place of being your own God, being self-sufficient and running your own lives. When in reality, the things you put your hope in are fragile at best. And right now it might be working for you, but it, it never stays that way. It never stays that way. And that right there is pride. He leads us in that direction to say, you lack knowledge. You're not as smart as you think you are. You're not as cool as you think you are. And I want you to lift your eyes to the God who loves you, cares about you, and wants to take care of you, and wants you to dictate the tempo of your life on faith and long faithful obedience to Him and not your own story and your own lives. So humility is this weird thing, though. How do we pursue humility, the humility that James is talking about, this idea of living our lives and doing the things that, that God's calling us to, leading us to, leading us to life? How do, you, how are you, how, how do we become humble? I mean, at the point when somebody asks you, like, what is the spiritual discipline you're working on in your life, you know? You know, what's the, what are you learning in your devotions? Well, you know what? I'm just really learning how to be humble. And you're like, did you really just say that? Did you just brag about being humble? I mean, I mean, it's like weird. It's like with this thing, do you ever arrive at, I'm there, I'm humble, you know? It's, and what we realize as we read Scripture is it's, it's, not a, it's not an arrival place, a banner that we put on, because then all of a sudden we, we've just paradoxically removed it. But there is a pursuit of humility in Scripture. This idea that God constantly is saying, hey, guess who's going to be exalted? The humble. Guess who's going to be honored? The humble. Guess who's going to be brought low? The proud. I mean, there's this kind of doorpost of humility and honor. Wherever you see humility, you see people being honored. Wherever somebody's willing to operate in anonymity and push somebody else to the forefront, that's who God seems to honor. I mean, the people that God uses in Scripture are the last people. I mean, look at the, the, the lineup of all of David's brothers. All of a sudden, these are the guys on earth that would get honored studs, warriors that walk out and they're tall and they're just, and then all of a sudden what happens? The guy that didn't, wasn't even in the lineup, God goes, boop, takes him out of the field. They're like, you talking about shepherd boy with the harp? You're going to put him and you're going to exalt him? Yeah, because he was humble and he was awestruck and absolutely blown away by who God was just by laying on his back, tending sheep and looking at the stars at night. Humility begets honor and there is a way to pursue that on planet Earth because it's the thing that will lock us back into the purposes of God. It's the thing that will put us in that place of doing the very thing 
that will give us true shalom, put us in that position of as it, this is the way it should be because you were made by and for God. And if that's not where you're living your life, everything will always be off kilter. It will always be fractured. You'll always be clawing to fill that eternity that is set in the hearts of men. So how do we pursue humility in the way that we're looking at here in James? This deep, kind of invasive pride that we're trying to extract. So three ways we pursue humility. The first one is, and this is pretty standard stuff, is understand and acknowledge your weakness. Understand and acknowledge your weakness. And many of us think, you know, I know my weaknesses. And I'm not talking about job interview weaknesses when they say, please list your strengths and weaknesses. Well, my wife tells me that I work too hard. I know that's a weakness in me. And then I am incessantly trying to finish projects, you know, that I'm obsessed with treating people with kindness and I don't do enough stuff. I mean, it's like, no, not those weaknesses, but like real weaknesses. And for many of us, it's hard to identify our own weaknesses on our own. And we live in an individualistic society where we like to Google it and try to figure it out ourselves. Like when something's broken, how are we going to fix it? YouTube. We don't go call somebody. It's the same with our, with our own psyche, with, with the way that we're, we're broken because of sin. We, we tend to not leverage what God's given us in the, in the, the, the body of Christ. Because we don't trust each other. It's an individualistic world that we live in. We don't want to expose or shine light on our lives and say, can you please tell me what my blind spots are? Can you, can you, can you reveal my, my weaknesses? Like, what is it that I'm good at? What is it that I'm weak at? We're afraid to hear the answers. But we need to know what, that's why I'm not, like, when I think about that, it says, look, in this, in this passage in Scripture, it says, listen now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this city spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. I mean, in somebody's translation, I don't know if it's the ESV, it says, come now you who say, today or tomorrow. I mean, he's like, James is like, come on, man. Really? Is this what you're doing? And Tim Keller kind of breaks it down this way. He says, spiritual pride is this. And this is exactly what James is saying in, in verse 13. He says, spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives and achieve our own sense of self-worth. We can build up a resume for ourselves. We can do enough things for ourselves and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. This is the heart of, of what, what James is trying to say. He's saying we can, get a, we can get good enough grades. We can be good enough athletically. We can be good enough at surfing or football or baseball or even video games. I know y'all mock each other for how trash you are on video games. You can do whatever you want to make yourself feel a little bit above somebody else, a little bit better than somebody else. And that's what you're doing. You're going from this place to that place, succeeding, making money, building a life for yourself, trying to achieve salome with success, with the white picket fence, with the cars that look like like spaceships and houses where everything's protected. We've got our 401ks, which is nothing wrong with a 401k. But if it's at the pinnacle of what you need to feel okay, we've missed it. Because our foundation, our rock, our peace, our shalom comes from Jesus. And spiritual pride is the illusion that we're competent enough to fix it all, to run it all, to protect it all, to give us meaning in life without God. That's why I'm not totally like some people are in spiritual order opposed to the Enneagram. I like the Enneagram. I mean, I'm not like obsessed with it. Like I don't wear a three t-shirt around, you know, you know, so that you know how to treat me, 
you know? Uh, I mean, some people get really weird about it. It's like, you know, I'm a six, you should know. You should know this is the way I was going to react to that. Six. Sorry. Just been around some Enneagram people. But I do like the Enneagram. There is like this introspection that is, is positive to dig into your story and understand who you are. Because in the Enneagram, it exposes your weakness when you're at your worst. And, and because of your past, because of what's happened in your life, this might be the way that you react in certain situations. Here's what you're good at. Here's what you're not good at. And the cool thing about understanding and knowing that you are not competent to run your own life and achieve your own sense of self-worth is because God created something else called the body of Christ, where we can do that together. Because some of you are extremely talented at a particular thing and extremely weak and broken in another way. But we don't want to talk about the weakness. We just want to be used in the, in the way of our strength. But if all of a sudden we come together and with your strengths and with my strengths, and we come together and we become the body of Christ. We become those people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, guess what the Apostle Paul says? You're all not a head. You're all not a hand. You're all not eyes. You're all not feet. Some of you are hands and you're really good at it. And he's kind of talking about the body of Christ. Like some of you have gifts and talents and some of you don't. And collectively, you can run a really good race. You could run the decathlon. But if we have just a bunch of hands or if, there's, if you're just a hand running on your own, you're going to have trouble because you ain't got no legs and you ain't got no feet and you don't know where you're running. It is so in life. We have to know what our weaknesses are. We have to know what our strengths are. And that's what Scripture leads us to. That in, in humility... We will thrive because we'll understand and know our weaknesses. Now, some of you think, oh, I don't struggle with pride because I don't think I'm good at anything. I'm just lame. I'm just not, there's no, I don't even know what I'm, like, what I would be useful doing. God didn't give me any gifts. You know, that's another area, that's another spectrum of spiritual pride. I mean, what are you saying about God at that point? Being an image bearer of, of God, the one that created you. For himself to say, I can't do anything. I'm not, I, I have no value. It's saying, I don't want to step in. I'm so prideful that I'm, I'm terrified to step into something because I might fail. So I'll stay in the safe zone of doing nothing. But God uses, guess what? And you might be lame. I'm just going to be honest. You might be lame at stuff. But that's, look at the Bible. It is full of lame people that God used for his own glory. He took people that should not, be, should not be doing what they're doing. Look at the Apostle Paul. I mean, he would not even pass the background check at Ocean City Church. I mean, we would send in 127 murders. Oh, my goodness, probably not going to be going to children's ministry. I mean, look at David. I mean, David, he, I mean, the, the, the greatest king of Israel, sent his best friend to get murdered so he could sleep with his wife. I mean, we've got a string of people. Look at Gideon. He was the least of his tribe. I mean, people literally, he, he said, people don't look at me as somebody that could accomplish anything. And look what he does. God uses him. In fact, he strips down the army to, to next to nothing. Why? Because he says, I want you to know that this was about me and it wasn't about you. That I'm in your corner, but the glory goes to me and the glory doesn't go to you. Because this is going to be for your good and my glory. You're going to, instead of being about your own little micro story that you think is so awesome, where you go to this place and that place, you make money here and there, I'm going to put you in the grand, amazing story and epic of God because I love you and I care about you. 
Because I want you to be free. I don't want you to submit again to the yoke of slavery. Those fragile things that will never hold you up, that will fail you, that will leave you destitute. But I want to lead you to the foundation that is, that is God, that is strong, that is good, that is right. You continue the second thing, very, very simple and practical stuff here, and it's all in Scripture. Listen and learn. So understand your, your weaknesses. Listen and learn. Like, stay curious, people. And what I mean by that, like, playfully acknowledging, acknowledging that, it, that you don't know something. Now, this is all over the Bible. Right in James, it says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to what? You guys know it because you've been listening. And slow to? Yeah, opposite of the world in 2020. I mean, go look at social media. People really want to speak and people won't shut up. I mean, it's just what it is. But look, look what Proverbs says. This is one of my, one of my favorite. It's hard for me to, to read because I got a problem of talking too much. But it says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. Like, and then it goes on and I, then it gives you like a clear picture. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. And that just makes me laugh. It's like the guy that's quiet and we know who it is. We've been in those groups. There's a guy in the corner and he's just kind of doing this. He's quiet. And everybody's talking and flapping their gums about something. And it's just da-da-da-da. And they're like, dude, that guy over there has got something to say. And when he says it, it's going to be special. You know what I mean? You ever been in that, that thing? That's never been me. Sorry. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Like, I'm going to be, you know, be quiet. But then it's pride, right? It's like, watch this. I'm going to drop a bomb in the middle of this. Bing! No. But I love this because it's like, listen and don't speak. Learn from people. Be, be humble enough to, to learn from the people around you. Do it in life. Like we should be the people that are in a crowd. And when there is a, an expert in the mix, we, we shouldn't be flipping in our two cents, you know? You know, if the pilot's in there and he's talking about, you know, you're asking, you should be asking questions. Amy Brenner, who flies massive helicopters, she goes to our church. I mean, that's what you want to do. If you're around Amy Brenner, don't be, you know, that weirdo that's like, yeah, I kind of know a little bit about drag and lift. I like to hold my hand out of the car. I understand how a helicopter works. I mean, just ask her questions about the amazingness of flying, you know, across the whatever, you know. I wave at every helicopter, too, when I'm out surfing as if it's her in the thing, like waving my surfboard at her. Did you see me out there? You know, shaka. She's like, no, I didn't see you. But we should, when you're in that conversation, I mean, that should be, you know, that's, they're the expert. We should be curious and we should learn and we should listen. You know, when there's a doctor in the mix, you know, everybody's a doctor now. I mean, especially after 2020, it is funny. Well, I've got some research right here. I just got it from a friend that knows a guy that's been a part of a thing. And, you know, the CDC said this, and this is what we should be doing. And so, you know, the mask, I don't know about this, but we got this and the vaccine. Was here. Anyway, this is what we should be doing. Just shut up. <laughs> I mean, just there's a doctor right there. I've told people so many times, and this is, I mean, this is just us getting raw. It's like we've got doctors, nurse practitioners, we've got all these people in the church, and I could talk to them. I'm looking at Dan Cooter right here. I was like, how many phone calls did you get about what should be going on and what should we do? Like, how should my family be responding to that? I could tell you right now, it wasn't a lot. And it's, it's, it's what we, we try to, it's because we independently try to solve our own problems. It's like, oh, we'll do a little Googleation and we'll fix it all, you know? You've got somebody in the body of Christ, a doctor, a nurse practitioner, somebody who went to med school. You should be, shh, and listen. Yeah, that might help out. We'd be in a lot better shape and we would have fought a lot less had people had a little bit of humility and were a little bit quieter. And when it comes to 
how we operate with each other in church, I think in the world in, in general, is that if we, if we want to learn, if we want to listen and learn, it comes through serving. It comes through serving in anonymity. And I think sometimes we come into the, into the framework of church, serving, ministry, our life with God. And for some of us, we've been in church world for a long time. And we don't ever want to get in that place of, you know, we're like, I've already got, you know, I've already done my time. I did my time at this church or this church. You know, I've, I kind of know that, that thing. You know what would, is, is an unbelievable display of humility? And I've seen it here in this church. As somebody that I know could probably come up and do my job better than me. And they've chosen to put themselves shoulder to shoulder with a 27-year-old that's on the greeting team and let that guy lead them. And, and not in a, like, a patronizing way, like, <laughs> he doesn't know that I could speak better than the president. I mean, he's just like, it's, I, I, there's actually something I could learn about that 27-year-old in the way that he serves. And I'm going to be quiet and I'm going to listen. And I'm going to, I'm going to serve here as long as they need me here. And then if the opportunity comes and God uses me this way, fine. I love the stories of people that had served for years and nobody knew that they were awesome at X. I had a friend of mine, Dan Gamage, who flaming good guitar player, like amazing. And he served in all these different areas. And then all of a sudden, somebody asked him, and said, hey, can you play at this worship jam and do this thing? And he comes with this like Aaron-like spaceship pedal board and sticks it on the stage. And we're like, is he getting ready to play guitar? Like, is he good? And he just gets on there. And he was like the edge himself from U2. I mean, he just blew everybody. And we're like, dude, we didn't even know. And he, if you ever met him, you would get it because he's just a humble, humble guy. But that's just a, a way that when we come into the framework of serving, I think sometimes we're wondering, like, when am I going to get my opportunity? Why do I not have an opportunity? And it's probably because you didn't stay long enough. In my 18 years of ministry, I've seen people go from church to church to church to church to church, hop around from place to place, and I've heard it before. I didn't have an opportunity there. I didn't have an opportunity. And I could guarantee you with such, it's 100%. If I got all my pastor friends, if I got Joby, you know, Beach, you know, Jerry at Beach, and just some other people, you know, all of them in a collection and said, hey, are you, have you just run out of opportunity here, church, to serve? They would all pass out. They would, I mean, because they, they're like, oh, we got it. It's, the problem is, is people, you, you, we, we feel and think that we know exactly where we should be utilized and used. And it's long, faithful obedience in one direction. Those are the people that end up, you're like, how did that guy end up on a stage? He speaks so good and he had an opportunity. Guess what? He probably had been there forever. And there was a long trajectory of faithful obedience. And I see that with the people that have served and are in leadership positions, our elders in our church. I'm talking about long, and they're still serving in places of anonymity. I mean, I see our elders in elementary, the, 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 all of our elders serving in elementary. I'll walk around the corner and Dan Cooter's in there or Darren Vianger's in there. And they're taking a kid and moving him over here, you know, doing, you know, teaching them the gospel. And it's that long, faithful obedience and humility that leads to that place of honor. It leads to that place of, of growing in the pursuit of humility. Tim Keller says, a lot of us, we, we don't know how to even evaluate that. And there's three, three ways he says to evaluate it. There's, it starts with, I like it. Like, if I want to know what to do in life, okay, I dig this. This is kind of, I have an affinity for this. My curiosity leans in that direction. I enjoy this. Second is ability. Like, 
you should be good at it. <laughs> I mean, you should be, and more than just, my mommy told me I could sing. I mean, it should be like better than that. You know what I mean? Like people around you should be affirming that. And then it's opportunity. And this is the big one because God really is the one that drops the opportunity bomb. I never had any opportunity. God knows exactly where you are. And in a place this small, if you're good at something, we will grab you and find you and put you there. I mean, it's just, it, it is what happens. But those things begin to work together and God uses those things to, to put people in the places that God wants. God knows why and where you are. And maybe it's that season of long, faithful obedience. I don't think we ever stop serving in places in the kingdom of God and anonymity because it's all about His glory and not our own. So we definitely want to understand our weaknesses, but, but also we want, to, we want to listen and learn and stay curious. And thirdly, is we want to, and I love this, we want to gaze. I just, I like the word gaze, like just putting that there as a point because we should know what that means. In Psalm 8, David says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. This is David laying on his back, you know, Tending the sheep, and he's looking up at the skies going, I cannot believe you know who I am. And he's just blown away that God loves him. He knows that he is, in terms of how many people are on the planet, and he doesn't even really know his scope. I mean, this is a long time ago, but he knows from what he can see up in the sky, just it's like, oh my goodness, I am insignificant. I'm a grain of sand, and I can see what you've made, the expanse of the universe, and you care for me? You love me? And there was something about that that just made David's heart explode. And it's built into every single one of us because when we gaze at the, at the beauty of the Lord, when we gaze at who he is and what he has done, it, 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 it humbles us in the most beautiful way that brings joy. John Piper says, says this. He says, um, standing in the presence or self-forgetfulness, which is what I think we would all love to do. Like, I'd like to forget about me and worry about other stuff, but I'm always worried about what I look like. You know, how did that come off? How did that conversation go? What went off? You know, self-forgetfulness. Wouldn't that be nice? Self-forgetfulness self -forgetfulness in the presence of majesty is the capstone of joy. You get that? Self-forgetfulness in the presence of majesty is the capstone of joy. Like, when we see something so grand and so majestic that we forget our lives, we forget, our, we forget what's worrying us. We forget about the money that we've made. We forget that we're that significant in the grand scheme of awesomeness and we just see something that's awesome. We shrink in a good way. We shrink in almost a, I can't believe God loves me way. And that's what David's experiencing here in Psalm chapter eight. Psalm 27, my, my, my favorite Psalm. It's surrounded by such amazing things. He says, one thing I ask from the Lord, this is all I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I mean, this is God telling you in a convicting way from a pastor, you should, you should come to church. I'm just kidding. I'm just making messing with you. Like, I'm going to use the Bible to make everybody come to church. But he loved, he had a different viewpoint of church. It wasn't an obligation for him. He was on the run. Earlier in this passage, he's saying, the Lord is my light, my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He's preaching to himself that God's on his side because he's on the run, on the run and he's alone and he's not been able to go to the temple. He's not been able to worship with the people of God. And he missed it. 
He continues to say what? I dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To what? To gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. David understood, as broken as he was, as sinful as he was, that he wanted to give his attention. He wanted to give his everything. He didn't want faith to be an appendage. God was his everything. He was his salvation. He was his light. He was his solution. He was his redeemer. He was the one that would never leave him or forsake him. You know, it's interesting, this thing, attention. I've been, been reading and, and listening to a guy, John Mark Comer. He's a, a pastor out in Portland and writes some amazing books. He wrote a book uh, recently on hurry. It was a New York Times bestseller. And he says something very simple but poignant. He says, attention is the beginning of devotion. Giving something your attention is the beginning of devotion. And we can do that with a lot. <laughs> you can do it with a lot of different things. Give things your attention. You see, over time, it begins to get our devotion. And he goes on and says, Because what you give your attention to is the person you become. Put another way, the mind is the portal to the soul. And what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. In the end, your life is no more than a sum of what you gave your attention to. That bodes well for the apprentices of Jesus who gave the bulk of their attention to him. And to all that is good and beautiful and true in this world. But not for those who give their attention to the 24-7 news cycle of outrage and anxiety and emotion. Charged with drama and nonstop feed of celebrity gossip, titillation and cultural drive. He goes on in this parenthetical statement and says, As if we give it in the first place, much of it is stolen, our attention, by a clever algorithm out to monetize our precious attention. Now you know where he's going with this. Talking about the devices we carry in our hands. He says, but again, we become what we give our attention to. For better or for worse. He does talk a lot about in this, like phones and smartphones were were built and created initially. What we were sold in 2007 when the iPhone came out was this is going to speed up our life. We'll have more time. We'll have more margin. We know what margin is anymore, like these gaps in our lives where we have some time. It, it was gonna, we're going to be able to plan. we got a calendar on. We can plan everything out, and then we can have more time. Well, guess what? Phones have not increased margin at all. Statistically, they have absolutely closed every corner of any margin we ever had. And the, just to, to make it sad here at the end, <laughs> it, you look at the statistics on what happened after 2007. Now they know. Now we've got enough studies of the damage of the cell phone. Sorry, you guys are all going to lose your cell phones from your parents after this little rant. Um, the suicide skyrocketed. I mean, like exponential. Anxiety and depression and the, the prescriptions for those went up not 30%, 60%, like 450%. I mean, it happened right there, the bell curve. You can look at it online. I mean, it's just skyrocketed. And they all, it's now, it's not like, I wonder if that was the phone it's, they correlate it with it. They're like, it is the attention and the gazing we've given to the phone, to this little thing in our pocket. It's interesting, you go anywhere where we might have a little margin, but because of our discomfort, we won't do it. I just heard somebody tell a story about going to a football game and they got there early and all their friends were going to show up and then they didn't have any, you know, any friends there. Well, what's the instinct, you know? You know, I'm going to look at this because everybody else has got friends. Everybody else has got people. I mean, nobody just stands around and looks. I mean, everybody's like, who's the weirdo without a phone? You know, 
But that's where we, we, we've lost something. I mean, there was a generation of us in the room that, that understand there was a word. I don't know if y'all know what this is called, boredom. Like, there's just not crap to do anymore. You know? It's, there's the white snow on the TV after 11. I mean, we just don't have anything to do. Like, there's nothing to look at in the car ride. Car rides were like your eyes wanted to bleed because you were so bored. I mean, your parents are playing 20 questions. Now kids are like, car rides, sweet. I've downloaded 18 things on Netflix, and we got shoo shoo boop boop You know, they're all good. They love a car ride. I'm going to iPad it the whole way to North Carolina, you know? We were bored, you know? When are we going to get there? Parents are like, we don't, we don't hear that anymore. Some parents in here are like, I don't know that. Well, my age, we used to say it to our parents. No margins. We filled all those gaps. And when you, when you do that, it's interesting. Corrington Boom says this. She was, a, you know, she was in a concentration camp in Germany or in Poland um, and helped hide a lot of Jews and saved a lot of lives and was a wonderful, beautiful Christian. But she says this, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And it's so true because both sin and busyness separate us from other people and from God. Both of those things equally. Isn't that interesting? We can say we're busy and we don't feel like that's sin. But both of them do the same thing. They separate us from God and other people. And we've lost this thing called margin. And it's interesting. Sometimes we, we, we think it's impossible. We look at the church. We look at obligations when it comes to spiritual things. Like city groups, just another thing. And this isn't a, a marketing campaign I'm throwing at you. I, wherever you go to church, wherever you end up, wherever you land, this is not a, a, about Ocean City Church. But coming to church, being a part of city group, being in Bible studies, having morning devotions, is not something that you heap on somebody as a guilt thing. If we really believe what God has done for us is real, it should be the devotion that we hear in David's voice. I can't wait. There's no place I'd rather be. He says in another part of Scripture, I'd rather be be in the house of the Lord for a second than a thousand days elsewhere, a minute, an hour, a day than a thousand days elsewhere. I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. I want to be seek Him in His temple. I know this is where life is found because if I gaze at Him, everything else fades away. And we look at life sometimes like all these things are in the way. Spiritual things are in the way of all the other stuff I got to do. So I got to make time for spiritual things. And I think we've got the mentality wrong. Like in some way, spiritual things have, have kind of, they, they, they kind of get in the way and they ruin all the other stuff. But we got to put it in there because we call ourselves Christians. It's interesting, I heard a, a, a story while I was on sabbatical. It was fantastic at a conference I went to. It was about the Eiffel Tower and about the Shard in London, but I just, I'll use the, the, the Eiffel Tower as the, the example. They said the Eiffel Tower was built in 1887, and when it was getting ready to be constructed or when they were thinking about it, all the plans were submitted. Nobody, like the Heritage Foundation, the Historical Foundation, government, nobody wanted it. They're like, this is an eyesore, and it's going to ruin the view of all the other beautiful things in the city of love we call Paris. We are not doing the Eiffel Tower. It's, it's, they looked at how tall it was going to be, what it was going to look like, and all the stuff about it. And they're like, we're not doing it. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. And somehow there was somebody in the political realm that knew somebody that got the plans through. And the next thing you know, they started construction on this thing. And people were just absolutely livid. It is going to ruin the view in Paris. Everywhere we go, we're going to be looking up and trying to see this or that or this thing over there and this thing over here. And we're going to see this dadgum tower in our way blocking our view from all these beautiful things we love and know about Paris. All this stuff down here that's so awesome. Look at this thing. 
amazing thing about the Eiffel Tower and how proud they are in Paris of their Eiffel Tower because it, it did ruin the view until it became the view. Now everybody all over the world, they're coming to Paris to see the Eiffel Tower. They're going to go there. They want to go there. The people in Paris are proud. They're going to send people to the Eiffel Tower. In every picture that you see, every postcard that you see, even if you're trying to see the History Museum or this piece, you, you are not upset that you can see the Eiffel Tower in it because then people will know that you were in Paris and you're cool. It's everywhere. Yeah, it ruined the view until it became the view. And when I think about the cross of Jesus Christ and gazing on the beauty of the Lord, the very thing that at one time, for everybody that viewed it, ruined the view. It was a grotesque loss of hope for everybody that thought, this is going to be the final shalom. We just celebrated him and said, Hosanna, Hosanna to, to God in the highest. He's the king. He's going to sit on the throne. He's going to relieve us of Roman rule. This Jesus, this king, and they had no idea what God's plan was that he was gonna erect this bloody cross with his son on it. And they stood there and thought, the, the, the view has been ruined. The hope is gone. Everything that we thought was good is gone. Everything that we had, we had planned on, everything that we thought was gonna happen, we were gonna get to go back to our lives without Roman rule, without this oppression. We were gonna be able to do the things that we used to do. We got this new king in Judea on the throne in Jerusalem, and his name is Jesus. And they, this grotesque, bloody scene. Three guys hanging on crosses and the Son of Man hanging on a cross, bleeding out on Mount Calvary, ruining the view until it became the view. Until it became the view. And for you and for me, we often forget because we spend less time gazing at the beauty of the Lord and the beauty of the cross and what he's done for us and more time gazing at our own plans, at our own life, distracting ourselves from discomfort, disconnecting us from God and other people. And all God wants for you and me and what James wants you to see because God loves you and wants to extend kindness to you and free you from the bondage of the lie that this world wants to continue to say to you is that hope's found in there. Hope's found in your best laid plans to build your self-worth. He wants to lift your eyes to the cross. He wants, wants to lift your eyes to the face of Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and his grace. It's what we need. It's our only hope. It's our only hope. Let's stand. God, we love you. God, never, ever let us lose the wonder of your mercy. Never, let, just never let us lose the wonder of the cross.